In today's episode, I'll be talking with the fantastic Omar Chowdhury from the 21st Club. This is one of four podcasts talking about the future of the football industry. Daniel, I wanted to chat about broadcast rights. Um, they're the kind of they're the one thing that drives the football economy, right? Mm-hmm. Is the people watching the game and, and, and people paying the subscriptions and, and the broadcast companies putting out the adverts that people want to see. Um, and obviously, with it being such a key important part of the game, I know that you provide a lot of advice to, to owners and to businesses around where that's going. Mm-hmm. Give me a bit of a perspective on, on broadcast rights at the moment. Obviously, the big headlines from the most recent Premier League cycle is that it's plateaued. The domestic rights have plateaued. Mm-hmm. Where do you see it going over the next five, ten years? Yeah, it's we're at a fascinating stage, I think, because for, for a number of different reasons. I mean, when we go back to the Premier League in 1992, its inception, you know, there was a five-year deal worth just over, including highlights packages, £220 million. Pounds. Um, the foreign uh, non-UK deal was non-existent, mm-hmm. is the truth. Fast forward until 2019, and we've got the latest cycle, which um, includes three broadcasters broadcasting in the UK, um, over £9 billion pounds worth of global revenues, over £4 billion pounds worth of domestic revenues from three broadcasters. As you said, a 7% decrease, effectively a plateau in the, the domestic rights, but a 34% increase in the, the international rights. What, what does that effectively tell us? Well, it says maybe that um, you know, the, the huge sums of money that broadcasters, platform providers, or whatever you want to call them, Sky and BT, are looking to be able to spend has probably reached not quite a tipping point but that particular point where there isn't a huge amount more additional value that it can bring to the table now there's wider question marks around why Sky and why BT are in the market usually it's to effectively cannibalise their own um, broadband their own quad play their own mobile offerings etc with E and Sky Mobile at least in domestic rights but you know um the, the, the interesting dynamic now is, and we'll, I know we're going to talk about it in a separate um, uh, bit of content as well, is where that leads or where that leaves owners, investors, directors of clubs because um, there are significant amounts of money at play. You know, we can again talk about it in more detail, but when um, you know, the top club, Manchester City, winning the league last year, which is still hurts as a, <laughs> both of us as Liverpool fans to a degree. Um, uh, earning £151 million pounds for, for winning the league and the bottom team, Huddersfield, are earning £97 million pounds for the finishing bottom and participating in the league. They are significant amounts of money and um, you know it's been modelled this year that with the, the small changes to the, the distribution methods, which again we'll talk about in more detail, the, the winners of the Premier League may earn upwards of £170 million pounds, um, with um, the bottom team actually earning over the £100 million pound mark for the, for the first time. So the, the commercial significance shouldn't be underplayed and as part of the wider football ecosystem you know a lot of people think that players are at the heart of the game that they are but the truth is who pays the players and generally it is TV subscribers exactly yeah the, the fans are very much at the heart of the game and, and they run the football economy if we decide not to watch things or not to watch particular teams or players, and those particular teams or players aren't aren't going to get watched and aren't going to get aren't get the going to get the money that that comes into the game. Yeah, and, and obviously the the big kind of topic of debate in this country in particular is Amazon coming mm. into the market um, for for this season. Um, 
Interestingly, they've got Boxing Day games. Amazon very much, you know, driving a bit like what you're talking about with Sky and BT around um, their broadband and so on. For Amazon, it's around the retail um, that they can retail revenues they can bring in through through their website. So linking their Boxing Day games around Christmas mm. with uh, with it being Amazon, it's interesting. Well, what the different OTT strategies are going to be because Amazon have got a very clear one, but. Are we going to see Facebook? Are we going to see Twitter? Are we going to see Netflix is coming into to football? Or is it still too early to say? Yeah, I mean, my specific at least remit and but for the for the types of comments at least I've given and some of the thought I've given on the football side is is nuanced enough as it is really in terms of lots of things that I read. But there was a brilliant piece I read on um, the the commercial viability of Amazon Prime coming into the the market into the EPL market in the first place really. Um, and the query is whether it's um, a content play, whether it's a physical product delivery play, or whether it's a data play, or whether actually it's all three, which is probably likely to be the case. So then the question becomes is, um, you know, the, the cost per customer acquisition for any type of business becomes almost the main dynamic for um, any business deciding on whether to invest large sums if it is reported that Amazon actually paid a large sum for the rights we're not sure it's never been disclosed but again it then becomes um, a a question of churn and that's almost the the model I believe part of the model from this article the great article that I read seemed to be suggesting which is what is the the cost of customer acquisition is a football fan going to purchase Amazon Prime just to watch two sets of live matches query might not be um, is a football fan who is already um, on Amazon Prime because they are um, recipients of physical deliveries to come quicker and free of charge then going to stay on the platform because maybe they can have access to Premier League football, a highlight show maybe ATP tennis as well etc and other types of premium shows all of it is effectively in my mind to drive a stickiness i.e the ease of remaining on a particular platform rather than it just being an EPL play for EPL fans etc and then there's a you know much wider players to data and if um, you know Amazon are able to collect huge swathes of data on purchasing retail consumer viewing habits on a complete range of topics that to me is almost a no brainer for paying a certain amount of money just for access to data collection is the truth so however you see Amazon generally, I think um, that for me the fascinating aspect is the evolution of the broadcasting market, which originally is satellite, moves to OTT over the top, and now to Amazon, which is exclusive OTT. Never before have we seen a pre- live Premier League match exclusively only showing on the internet. Mm. So, um, And then the evolution over the next period of time, that trajectory probably leads us, I would have thought, away from the traditional broadcasters and towards the Premier League almost taking back control, it's a terrible phrase to use, sorry, (laughs) of its product um, and going direct to consumer. And maybe that is the new evolving model, not in the next two years, maybe not the next in the five years, but at some point, I'm sure that dynamic becomes an interesting element. Yeah, it's fascinating. I know, I know a lot of football fans might almost find it a bit chilling that it's part of this big, much bigger, wide discussion that isn't just about just about football. Do you, do you think broadcasters are going to get interested in buying the rights to individual teams rather than the league rights? Because mm. obviously Spain, for example, used to Real Madrid Barcelona used to sell their rights individually and mm. Spain changed that in order to create more equitable distribution. Mm. Before we get onto the distribution bit, 
do you think we might potentially head back to that? Because these brands, particularly at the top of the Premier League, are so big, they're probably thinking, well, you know, if I'm Man United, I could just sell my rights to Twitter. Yeah, I mean, it's funny because things change and things don't change at all in, in our world, in a way. And I remember back when I was doing my my master's dissertation back in 2002, the main element of discussion then on broadcasting rights was the same as it is now, effectively, which is collective selling versus individual selling. Mm. And things have evolved exactly, as you said, from um, Spain and Syria as well um, into a collective selling approach, which supposedly aids competitive balance and, and everything else that we'll talk about. And um, at the moment, at least, for a club to decide it wants to sell its individual rights, the whole Premier League would have to allow mm. that individual club to be able to do that. So at the moment, um, it doesn't look like that possibility is is eminently likely um, because of probably the next thing we're going to talk about, which is um, the way that um, at least the Premier League has tweaked its distributions. So again, I mean, it'd be interesting maybe if you're able to talk about that in a little bit of detail mm-hmm. as much as you want and we can we can add in as well because, you know, a bit of a change happened um, at the end of the last season, which then is implemented in this season, which, which has a little bit of, um, well, has significant consequences for the top of the league and the bottom of the league yeah. to a degree. So you said that when the Premier League was first formed in 92, overseas rights were non-existent. I mm-hmm. think the clubs at the time agreed... Uh, we'll just split it, split it evenly, which seemed like a sensible idea. Because why, why try and pay a you know a fraction of money across a fraction of teams across the league? Uh, but obviously, overseas rights growth, particularly in the last two cycles, has been the main reason for for revenue growth in, in the league. Um, and that has meant that when the Premier League first started, I think the ratio between the top and bottom team in terms of TV money distribution was something like two point three to one. Um, so the top earner earned slightly more than twice the the bottom earner. Uh, that's slowly come down because of the growth of the overseas money. That's slowly come down to 1.6 to 1. And a consequence of that is that the Premier League has become one of the most popular, if not the most popular league in the world. Because, you know, on any given day, a Norwich can beat a Man City, right? And and that doesn't, or certainly, if you go back 10 years, certainly hasn't seemed to have happened as much in Spain, in Italy, in, in um in Germany as well with, with Bayern Munich so the Premier League has obviously been an incredibly competitive league um, but the overseas rights have grown I think the clubs at the top of the league in particular have looked at that and gone well we've been a big part in that value growth Man United winning all those titles are saying that you know one of the reasons the Premier League is so successful is because we've had a great team that people have wanted to watch in Hong Kong in China in South Africa in, in Brazil so shouldn't there be some merit payment based on, on that money and so, as you said, a couple of years ago, the clubs voted, some reluctantly, some less reluctantly, to have a, or distribute the overseas money slightly on merit, basically, where you finish in the league. And, and a large chunk of it still remaining on, um, on equal pay as, uh, as before. Um, and so what it means is that the ratio between the top and the bottom team can now go from 1.6 to 1.8 uh, to, 1 to, 1 to 1. Yeah. So it's a slight increase. And we actually did a piece of analysis on this looking at what's the impact of that on the league um, so it's, it's difficult to gauge what, what 1.6 to 1.8 is we estimate that the gap between the top and bottom team in the league would probably grow by about 2 to 4 points mm. so not major and you probably only see a couple of more thrashings if you like that's like a, a bad thing to happen to the league uh, a season so it's not, it's not really perceptible to, to a fan uh, but I guess the bigger question is, that, is the precedent that it sets, right? Mm-hmm. So while all other leagues, Spain in particular, have tried to go towards a more equal distribution because they've looked at the Premier League and gone, look, that league's so competitive, that's the reason people want to watch it, maybe we should try that, to the Premier League actually going the other direction. 
Now, the Premier League is still far and away out of the major league, certainly, and even actually globally, one of the most, if not the most equal, equally distributed um, TV money leagues in the world. Um, but it is an interesting dynamic, and, and the, there is a fair question to be asked. You know, the overseas money that has been grown, the Man United's, the Liverpool's, the, the Chelsea's, and so on, are in part responsible for that. So you can understand their argument, but you can also understand the argument for the balance. And I think that's the, the other interesting thing we were talking about in preparing for this, this broadcasting section was um, a piece that Swiss Ramble recently, a thread that he um, really perceptively wrote on um, the distinctions between particular leagues in terms of equitable distributions, but also in just terms of raw numbers. So, you know, some of the, the, the great stats he had was that, for example, in pure domestic rights numbers, Wolves and Everton earned more money last year than Real Madrid in terms of broadcasting monies, and Huddersfield earned more money than Borussia Dortmund, um, or I think it was Juventus potentially as well, which was you know crazy in terms of statistics go. But in terms of that, um, you know, uh, top to bottom ratio, obviously the Premier League still being there. In terms of, for example, competitive balance, I know this, this sort of topic is brought up quite regularly. Obviously, one of the virtues of the Premier League is supposedly on any given Sunday, you know, any team can, can beat each other. On, based on some of your experiences in terms of competitive balance, you know, you do, you do your rankings, for example, um, across leagues and across the world. What type of things do you see in terms of... Um, uh, strength of league in terms of strength of particular teams within the league and how, how, how do you work out those type of numbers generally? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. So we've got our World Super League which essentially ranks teams all over the world, about 4,000 teams in one big league table. Mm. Uh, and so we do that based on results that sit across competition mm. but within competition. So we see when you know Salzburg play Liverpool, how good the top team in Austria, Austria is relative to England and then we assess all below that as well. Um, one of the trends that we've seen outside the major leagues is actually they've always been a little bit unequal. There's always been a big team in a Bulgaria or a big team in Greece or a big team in the Netherlands. Um, and so competitive balance is quite flat in those leagues, but not healthy, if that makes sense. Yeah. So it's, it, you're still getting the same winners. And I, I know there's kind of moves and designs to try and fix that, either through domestic broadcast money, which isn't a lot in those leagues, or potentially through the European landscape, which we'll get onto. Um, in the big leagues, you are seeing those leagues accelerate away from the smaller leagues because partly because of international money. So fans in Asia, in Africa, want to watch Spanish teams, want to watch English teams. They don't really want to watch Belgian teams or Greek teams. Uh, and so you're seeing this disparity across well across Europe, basically, where the big leagues are increasingly the big leagues, um, which which is a potentially cause for concern. Um, and so, yeah, the 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 Premier League. La Liga in particular are comfortably the two best best leagues in terms of quality um, and I think that's is causing problems across the European landscape and I think that one of the, the the starting things that I saw and again it was uh, without name checking Swiss Ramp too many in all of these um, discussions but I think he was effectively the first person towards the end of last season or just as the season was finishing which came out with the, the interesting stat, again, as a Liverpool fan, that Liverpool were the first team to break the quarter of a billion pound mark for um, domestic and international broadcasting revenues in one particular mm-hmm. season. And that was due to earning over £152 million in the Premier League and around €111 million, Euros, I believe, for um, uh, champions, winning the Champions League. Mm-hmm. And I think what I found interesting about um, that was that is just one 
particular silo of a club's wider commercial revenue base, if that's the right way of saying it. And on one hand, you have you know broadcasting rights, but you know we're seeing now commercial revenues, front of shirt, um, corporate, um, other types of um, match day revenues, etc., etc., growing. In terms of your analysis, I guess what you know, broadcasting is one element to it. Um, how, how are clubs managing to be able to stretch the revenue pie? Mm. That's the right way of saying. Yeah, it's it's a real challenge for clubs because they're they're almost restricted by the economies that they're in. So if you take a team like Ajax, for example, um, they their match day, so their stadium's only so big. There's only so many people you can get in, and yes, you can try and utilise the stadium more on non-match days. But again, there's only so much you can do on that space. Commercially, they're restricted by the, the Dutch economy. They're they're in the Netherlands. They it's very difficult for Ajax to extract revenues from England or extract revenues um, from from other countries. And they're Ajax. They're massive, right? Um, you know, forget some of the smaller teams in the in the Netherlands or Belgium, wherever they they're going to really, really struggle yeah, extracting that commercial income. And so all these teams have to see it in, in the prism of broadcast money. Um, and that's why, you know, Liverpool doing well in the Champions League, doing well in, in the Premier League is going to mean more than getting even a good kit deal. Okay, at the margins, it might help with um, against a, a Chelsea or against the Spurs, but, but really it comes down to supporting performance, which in a way is kind of how you want it to be, right? You want teams to, to do well in a sporting sense, and the revenue that comes with that and then potentially reinvest that um, in the team but but Ajax a great case study their revenues was were doubled in 2018-19 compared to 2017-18 and we talk about one of the top teams in Europe here who have one of the most unpredictable incomes in probably any business anywhere right and whether that's healthy for the game or not I mean you can argue it different ways but um, it, ultimately clubs yes you can you can try and move the needle on match day commercial you can build new stadiums which will help and you can get great commercial teams in, but sporting success is number one for, for these teams. And, and leading on to that, onto probably those two colliding elements, um, broadcasting rights and additional monetization mixed with sporting success in the international game, um, you know, probably the one colliding element is the, the reports of a Super League or whatever you class a Super League to actually be and um, you know the Juventus owners talking about the possibility of a semi-closed league um, and qualification being limited to a degree you know obviously at a very high level you know there are a number of continental clubs that see this as the extra revenue generator outside of their domestic rights to be able to make that jump into maybe what some would see as the the big money that the premier league clubs are able to receive because of their domestic deal you know what what type of insights do you have on um, on on the super league well, the, the figures you gave earlier on you know wolves and everton earning more than well some of the biggest teams in the world well the biggest teams in the world basically i think points to the reasons behind their frustration around their own domestic domestic revenue and and so they're looking at again if you're a Serie A club yes there's some international revenue you can tap into but ultimately you're constrained by the Italian economy and, and how well the Italian economy is doing how many people in Italy want to watch you the one way you can expand that is to take a European perspective which in turn brings in a global perspective so if you're playing European football you're suddenly capturing all the eyeballs that exist around around Europe uh, and then potentially the world on top of that. Uh, so the rationale for those teams is clear. Um, but from a sporting point of view, personally, uh, it makes makes kind of it's not very compelling, right? Mm-hmm. To have a to have a close shop Champions League, to have teams that are 
kind of not performing very well but remaining within the elite of the game uh, and then at the same time undermi- undermining domestic leagues that have so much history and so much kind of value in them um, doesn't doesn't really make any sense um, so from, from the top team point of view I think the likes of um, Juventus and Barcelona and Bayern Munich and so on will have to keep trying to earn in the sporting games that exist within within the European economy I think the real challenges exist for teams outside the top leagues I mentioned Ajax but if you take a team like Celtic for example Celtic, if you go back you know, 15, 20 years, were more than capable of playing in the Premier League. But the Premier League TV rights growth and the stagnation in Scotland means that Celtic probably, I mean, they might be bottom half Premier League at best, but they're, they're kind of floating between the two now, uh, in t- certainly in terms of our uh, quality ranking of teams. Uh, and so for them, they're, they're kind of stuck in this space where they're just stuck in Scotland and they can't quite access the European revenues. So for them... The ability to enter more European competitions, which is one of the reasons UEFA has introduced the um, Europa Conference League, yeah. is to allow teams like Celtic to get more um, predictable European income. So Celtic now would expect to be in Europe each year when, when this new competition comes in, which, is, which I think is great for them um, and great for a lot of teams that are struggling at that level. But the close shop European uh, Super League concept for me sits, sits a little, little uneasily. Mm. And I, just very briefly, I mean, I think one of the interesting elements about the Super League structuring is how that actually works in practice. I mean, I, I think I've tried to read the reports of how two leagues with possible relegation out of those leagues and qualification happening at particular times isn't a straightforward format to even explain mm-hmm. to the wider public. And I think the one thing that, you know, as again, as both of us are football fans, that a lot of fans would have difficulty with, which I'm, I'm not convinced would necessarily happen, is the idea that suddenly the domestic league would be usurped. I mean, I, I think... The, you know, the bread and butter, as, uh, as Bill Shankly said back in the day, was always the domestic league and then pitting yourself against top teams across Europe and the world on a regular basis. And I think that diet is quite important. The query is where those lines become yeah. blurred. So do we, for example, have Champions League games apart from the final happening on weekends, which would otherwise be reserved for domestic games? Mm-hmm. So that is effectively almost the the slippery slope or the, the seeping effect into the domestic calendar and the domestic landscape, which I think is probably where the next iteration is, is headed, whether it will go that full way, I think it remains to be seen. Yeah, you, you talk about, we spoke about precedent earlier on, on changing the ratio of the Premier League again, it's a precedent thing, yeah. we move the, the final to Saturday, that makes changing semi-finals to Saturday easier, quarter-finals to Saturday easier, so that, that is definitely, uh, definitely a, channel, a challenge for, for those leagues. Thanks for listening to today's podcast. You can follow me on Twitter and Instagram at Football Law, read my blogs and listen to my previous podcasts via my website www.danielg.com forward slash blogs. Please do subscribe to the Dundee Football Podcast. Like, share and tag me. If you like the content, if not my voice, you'll probably like my book Done Deal, an insider's guide to football contracts, multi-million pound transfers and Premier League big business. Yes, a bit of a mouthful. It's available to buy in hard copy, digitally and via Audible. All the links are in the podcast show notes. Thanks for listening and please join me again.